It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. a senior research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. Today is Monday, November 30th, and you are listening to For Heaven's Sake, the podcast of the Institute's I Engage program. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Daniel Hartman, president of the Institute, and myself will be discussing an issue central to Israel and to the Jewish world. And then Alana Stein-Hain, director of the Hartman faculty in North America, will explore with us how classical Jewish texts can enrich our understanding of the issue. The Hartman Institute, we approach the Israel conversation as we do all our conversations, from a perspective of Jewish values, seeking broad and deep engagement. Our intention is to encourage a respectful conversation across political lines, promoting mutual understanding and strengthening Jewish peoplehood. Topic today, is the future of Holocaust memory. The memory of the Holocaust transitions from open wound to historical scar. What are the lessons that we carry as a people? What is the necessary balance between the particularist Jewish lessons of national sovereignty and self-defense and the more universal lessons of tolerance and anti-racism? With the Jewish people increasingly divided along religious and political lines, is it even realistic to expect the Holocaust to continue to unite us? These questions have been given added urgency recently by Prime Minister Netanyahu's nomination of Brigadier General Effie Tom as the next head of Yad Vashem, Israel's National Memorial Research and Educational Center on the Holocaust. Eitam has in the past called for the expulsion of Palestinians in the West Bank and has been accused of authorizing war crimes. Daniel, what does it mean to you, as an Israeli, as a Jew, that the Prime Minister of Israel would nominate a man with F.E.A. Tom's problematic past to head Yad Vashem? There's two parts when I think about that question. What does it mean to me, and what does the nature of the discourse in Israel about it mean to me? And I think they're both very important. I think the first is that this is the culmination of a core Zionist and Israeli perception that the Holocaust is not just something that happened to Jews, it's ours. It's ours. It has nothing to do with the world. It's our private story that we want the world to stand at attention, but what we basically want them to do is to recognize their guilt in our suffering. And it's our story. This is my mourning. It's my suffering. You did it to me, and I want you to remember, but it's my story. And it doesn't even have a complicated never again dimension to it. Because I don't want the world to commit to never again in Israel. 
I'm the answer to never again. It's not the world's recognizing of its sins and overcoming its anti-Semitism. Israel and Zionism, through its power, is the never again. And that's why F.A. Tom, the general, it's perfect. It's my story. He's my never again. And this is what it means. But uh, how do I feel about it? It's, it's, just, it's just remarkable to me how obtuse, how isolated, how non-thoughtful of all the people in Israel. Okay, he's a good general. He's a good manager. What, we don't have another one? The world, in our Holocaust, the world disappears. And it's just owned by us completely. And the lack of serious debate in Israel over this is also part of what's shocking to me. A lot of the debate is happening outside of Israel. There's very, very little debate taking place within Israeli society about this. Well, I don't know how much the public has paid attention. You know, we're, we're so overwhelmed with problems and controversies and scandals. I don't think the public has the psychic space for one more scandal. And the truth is, Blue and White is uh, putting a break, at least temporarily, on the appointment, so it's been frozen. That's the good news. But I think you've really touched on something very deep here, Danielle, which is that you, the world, did this to us. We owe you nothing. We certainly will not allow you to appropriate our Holocaust for universal values. The Holocaust is about Jewish self-protection, Jewish sovereignty, and here's a general, a brigadier general, who's also a war hero. And don't talk to me about war crimes. Okay, you know, people do things in the heat of battle, they do things which they later regret, but he's one of ours, we're proud of him, and he's the new Jew. And you know, this flies in the face of Yad Vashem's own maturation. Because Yad Vashem is not that institution anymore. It was that institution maybe 50 years ago. Today, Yad Vashem embraces the universal aspects of the Holocaust. It embraces the lessons of tolerance and anti-racism, but it insists on the primacy of Jewish self-defense and of sovereignty as the main takeaways of the Holocaust. And I think that that's a precious balance that Yad Vashem has managed to maintain. You see, I think here you added another really important dimension into the conversation, and that is the universalist versus particularist dimension of the Holocaust. I think in the Israeli story, there is a universalist notion. I want to teach the world that they're guilty. It's not, <laughs> no, it's not, no, no, you're the good, you're guilty, and I want to tell you the only antidote is our power. We actually think that this is the way you universalize it. Now add to it another feature, which is really, really important. And this is where it gets even more complicated. Very, very deep in Israeli discourse, the Holocaust is one of a kind, non-comparable to anything. So in Israeli culture, you're never allowed to say, oh, he's acting Holocaust-like. He's acting Nazi-like. If you do that, oh my God, there's no such thing, there's no comparison. Now, it's really interesting, each side does that when it's applied to them but they're willing to apply it. So part of the story also about Efietan is that while there were moral failings, they're irrelevant to the Holocaust because the Holocaust is this unique evil. It's unique both in its proportions, it's unique in the depravity, 
and it's unique at who it was addressed towards. And again, this is a byproduct of Israel being a closed community feeling very often under attack, that their universalism of the Holocaust is, I want to teach the world how bad they were. That's the universal message of the Holocaust. You were evil, and I'm never going to let you be evil again. It has nothing to do with universalizing as in universalizing the potential of evil or allowing the Holocaust and its evil to be applied to other things so that we could learn from it. We also know that in recent years, the uniqueness of the Holocaust has been under relentless assault. We're seeing the Holocaust relativized and trivialized and universalized. But you see, you just added the word trivialized and you made a judgment. Maybe the universalization of the Holocaust is one of the most important things about the Holocaust. Look, I'll give you an example of how universalization becomes trivialization. There was a very important debate during the Trump years over the detention centers for illegal immigrants that the administration was establishing along the Mexican border. And terrible crimes were committed there. Children were separated from parents. Hundreds of children were simply lost to their parents. But then the Holocaust slipped in. These are not just detention camps. These are concentration camps. No, we don't mean Auschwitz exactly, but not every concentration camp was a death camp. Suddenly, everybody's an expert. AOC is an expert on the difference between a concentration camp and a death camp. In the popular imagination, this became Auschwitz. And there's something I have to tell you, as the son of a Holocaust survivor, I am boiling. There's a very big difference between me and you. There was no family member of mine who went through the Holocaust. None. So I appreciate that my sensitivities are very different. But where I'm sitting, Yossi, when the Holocaust is this unique evil that can never be compared, Yossi, you're killing it. I appreciate that for you, for your father, for your family, how could I compare Texas to Auschwitz? Okay, there were parents that were separated. You don't have gas chambers, and I appreciate that. But when you keep it as nothing could be compared, you'll see, I'm telling you from my perspective, you're trivializing it because you assume that you could maintain its importance in the eyes of people even though you're not allowing anybody to learn anything from mother other than no, this was the no, one no. kind that you did to me. <laughs> Now, I, I would draw a distinction between the different phases of the Holocaust, the period between 1933 and 1939, for example, or even up until 1941, until the Vansi Conference and the Final Solution. That period still belongs to the normal realm of history. Now, it's not unique because we uniquely suffered. That's a vulgarity that has to be removed completely from Holocaust conversation. If this has nothing to do with the specificity of suffering, how can I compare someone uh, dying in a gas chamber to uh, an African slave in the hull of a ship slowly dying across the transatlantic? What's worse? It, 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 it becomes obscene. That's not the issue. The issue is, do we understand that there are moments in history that really are unique. Because I haven't walked where you walk, I accept that, and I'll be silent in front of your testimony, and I accept that, and I'm not arguing. But now I wanna ask you a question. How will the memory of the Holocaust be preserved? 
how will the memory of the Holocaust be taught? You know, Wittgenstein speaks about this notion of how do we know what things mean? And we learn it through usage, and then there's family resemblances and connections. You have to be able to use something. I'm with you. Of course, we have to talk so about apply it. it. So the way that I apply it as a Jew is that I have two commandments to remember. I'm supposed to remember that we were slaves in the land of Egypt, and I'm supposed to remember what Amalek did to us when we came out of Egypt. Those are the two poles of emotional memory. I have to protect myself, and I have to be generous toward others who are suffering. And so if we're looking for a takeaway, what applies to Egypt applies to the Holocaust. The first lesson is protect yourself. Don't be naive. Be alert. Know that you live in a world where genocide is possible. The second lesson is be generous toward others. Don't do to others what was done to you. So would you learn from the Holocaust that we as Jews, because of the Holocaust, should be more sensitive to the treatment of, of Latino refugees? Would that be a violation of the Holocaust? No, it's not a violation, provided that we don't compare. You have to insist on those distinctions. You'll see, my feeling is, is that when you're going to insist on those distinctions, you're going to be creating the fact that only Jews are kosher Holocaust talkers. You know what happens when people don't talk, Yossi? It becomes irrelevant. It becomes dead. Be careful. You might be making the Holocaust so holy, but you want to know things about holy? Holy become irrelevant. I understand that maybe for you it's too early. I'm not speaking now as a 25-year-old traumatized son of a survivor. I'm speaking to you as a 67-year-old Israeli who knows pretty much what you and our fellow citizens know about Jewish power and about the complexity of Jewish power and about the need to look at ourselves, to examine ourselves. I'm with you. And I agree with you that we can't so sanctify the Holocaust that it becomes untouchable. But if we go your route, we risk the opposite pitfall, which is fair game. The Holocaust becomes an endless source for tantalizing and titillizing metaphors. It is your all-purpose political drawing card. And then, Daniil? we're left with no memory at all. We are a people that know something about memory. We are custodians of memory. We're the world's experts in memory. How can we apply what we develop to a fine art in terms of memory of something that happened 3,500 years ago? How can we apply that to the Holocaust? Number one, I accept. And we, as always, you know, it's, it's a dance. And the question is, when do you cross that line? And I accept that and appreciate that. But I think we Jews are experts at maintaining memory. But we also always tend to turn that memory to being only about us. For me, the fundamental lesson of the Holocaust is not what happened to us. It's not. In that sense, my experience are different than yours. The key lesson of the Holocaust is the profound evil that human beings are capable of. Now, one of the lessons of the Holocaust, therefore, is you better protect yourself. Because if human beings are capable of that profound evil, then power is critical to survive in that world. But at the same time, I can associate that propensity to evil to Jews as well. Now, it's true. I have to be careful. If we don't have complex terms, we can't distinguish. I'm with you. But the issue is not universalizing the Holocaust. 
The issue is what is its core message and whether that core message is something that human beings, qua human beings, need to learn from. FEA Tom wants to teach the world that you killed us and, excuse me, FU, FU, IDF will protect us. I want the key lesson of the Holocaust to be that the depth of human depravity are almost limitless. And now let's talk about what do we need to do in our world in order to prevent it. I want that to be the second takeaway. Fair the enough. first takeaway, which Yad Vashem, as the national custodian of Israeli and Jewish memory, needs to emphasize, first of all, this was done to us. These are the lessons that the Jewish people has learned for its own self-protection. And yes, in addition to that, there are universal lessons that we all need to learn. Fair enough. Let's take a brief break and we'll return with a lot of Steinheim. Hi, my name is Michal Biton, and I am a scholar in residence at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Just before the election, as part of our symposium on Judaism, citizenship, and democracy, nine of our faculty members, including myself, came together to record short reflections on ideas that matter to Jewish communities today. To see the series, you can go to our website, shalomhartman.org context. Welcome back, everyone. Hi, Ilana. Good to be with you, as always. How can the Jewish sources enlighten us and help us cope with the complexities of memory and anger? Well, just an observation from how heated your conversation got in, um, I think, a very honest way is you can't actually control the legacy of an event. And it's very clear from the argument that you're having that Neither of you actually have control over what the central message is going to be. And likely, there are going to be competing messages. Even within the same group of people, there are going to be competing messages. So I just want to say something for actually not necessarily knowing what the primary legacy is going to be, but knowing what your piece of it is going to be, assuming that in the ecosystem of Holocaust memory, there are going to be other people who push for something else to be primary. So that's just my first observation. And the text that I went immediately to when I was thinking about Holocaust memory is the Bible's text about remembering Amalek. And it's a famous one and a complicated one in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, remember what Amalek did to you on your journey after you left Egypt. And it continues to describe what that was in the following verses, how undeterred by fear of God, Amalek surprised you on the march when you were famished and weary and cut down all the stragglers in your rear. And then we see something really shocking, which is the injunction to remember and to act. Therefore, when the Lord your God grants you safety from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a hereditary portion, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. And these verses came to mind so obviously because what we're dealing with in the Holocaust is a, a type of cruelty of they cut down the stragglers behind you. They have no fear of God. And how do you respond to something like that? And so the Torah gives us two responses. One is I want you to remember, don't forget, remember that this happened. And another is blot out the memory of Amalek. 
Now, blot out the memory of Emily. What does that mean? How do you respond when people are cruel to you? Now, you're, you've been talking about universalism and particularism, but little pieces have come out in your conversation about to what extent do we externalize who Amalek is and to what extent do we internalize it? So I want to look at two different readings of how we remember Amalek and what it means to blot out the memory of Amalek. One is more ancient and the other is more modern. So not surprisingly, one is going to externalize and one is going to internalize. But I want us to hear them side by side. The first one is a Psikta Rabati, chapter 13. And Psikta Rabati is like a ninth century midrash, and it's arranged by the weekly portion. And it reads as follows. Why did God see fit to act with Amalek with the trait of cruelty? Which, what an unbelievable opening line. The Sikta Rabati is concerned. Why, why is it that we're supposed to blot out the name of Amalek? Essentially, kill everyone. You shall wipe out the memory of Amalek. You shall kill men and women, quoting verses in Samuel 1. So Sikta Rabati answers, God said, I will give Amalek first what they will try to do later. It is revealed before me how in the future they will decree from the lad to the elder Children and women shall die all in one day from the Purim story. Therefore, you shall kill men and women, and you shall wipe out the memory of Amalek. This first reading from the ninth century echoes the whole ancient world's read of this injunction in the Torah, which is you have to protect yourself, and you have to take retribution against those who are going to destroy you, because power matters. <laughs> it's exactly it. Power matters, and we can't ignore that. And then you get to the more modern conceptions, and you have someone like, and I'm picking one out of many options, the Kedushat Levi, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berditcher, in his homily for Purim. And he writes something that feels very, very different. He says, remember what they did? It seems that this is not only for the seed of Israel being commanded to erase Amalek from the seed of Esav, Rather, every person in Israel needs to erase the evil part, the Amalek, that is concealed in their heart. That part is known as the name of Amalek. Wherever the seed of Amalek is found in the world, it is also found in the human being, because human beings are small worlds unto themselves. And therefore, there is a reality to Amalek, to the force of evil inside every human being, which arises every time to make a human being sin. And regarding this, the Torah tells us to remember. This is such a different view of it. It's that Amalek can exist within each one of us. Amalek is a way of being. It's a shamelessness. It's a cruelty. It's a lack of fear of heaven. This approach, it almost eclipses the other. And that's, I think, what we're dealing with here. The question of whether these two perspectives actually end up eclipsing each other. If you forget one or the other. So are there certain times in our history where we look at this and we say, oh, this is about us. We have to be careful the way that we behave. And there are other times in our history where we say, no, it's about them and what they did to us and we need to get rid of them. Chances are they live side by side within us. And I think a real question of the day, decades and decades after the Holocaust, is can we allow them to live side by side? Ilana, I agree with you that they both have to be there. The question is, 
how do we do both of them? Don't they seem to be competing too often with each other? It's almost as if this type of memory has become partisan. We speak about these and these combining them, but in fact, just like Yossi and I, not that I don't agree with him, I emphasize one, and it's not that he disagrees with me, but at the end when he talks, he always talks about the other one. So what do we do? Or where are you on this, personally? So I'll tell you where I am on this. It depends where I am geographically, where I am. When I'm sitting in the comforts of America in times when I'm not feeling a lot of anti-Semitism, of course I'm asking the internal question. I'm asking where am I to help other people? Where am I being careful? When anti-Semitism comes out, I say, well, wait a second. This is not just your garden variety universalist hatred. This is something I've seen before. This is something I know, and I'm not going to let it go. And I think sometimes when I'm in Israel, depending on what's going on, I'll emphasize one or the other, depending on actually the political moment and feelings of danger or not. I, I think they're accessed in different ways. But to be honest, I think part of our problem is that we try to construct simple narratives because simple narratives feel compelling. Simple narratives help create a whole world around your perspective as though no other perspective exists. And right. I'm just against simple narratives in general. I don't think we're the world's greatest experts in memory. We are among those who are expert in memory. I'm sure there are plenty of other cultures that have memory of terrible things that have happened to them. In fact, genocides that are going on right now. We're not the only, we're not the best, but we're us. Ilana, it's interesting. You moved away from the classic distinctions of the universal particular to the to using categories of externalizing and internalizing. One of the interesting things about Amalek is that we universalize it. It's actually a very poor example for the Holocaust in that sense, because Amalek, there's Haman is the Amalek, and this one is like an Amalek, and this one, we have Amaleks in every generation. It's not this one-of-a-kind, isolated story. And in fact, when you look in the Bible, okay, it wasn't such a good thing. But frankly, there's a lot of bad things that happened. I don't know if Egypt was actually probably worse than Amalek in what they did. And there's a lot of other examples, including some of the things that we did to the seven Canaanite nations that frankly make the Amalekites look like sweetie pies. So the classification of this evil using the category of Amalek, I think you're right, moves it away from it being an exclusively particular to being a fundamental question of evil. And then, as you said, there are moments for internalization, the Amalek in me, and there's moments of externalization, which means how do I protect myself from that evil? So if Amalek is the model for the future of Holocaust conversation, I think it is a very different one, Yossi, than the one that you were pushing for. What is your feeling? Well, you know, it's interesting because now that we're in the realm of religion and introspection and the, the realm of the soul rather than the realm of politics and history, it's a lot easier for me to agree with you, to feel comfortable with mm. this conversation. Yes, there's evil in each of us. One needs to be uh, humble and aware of our own capacity for Amalek. It's interesting also listening to you, Alana, speak about the differences about how you feel when you're in America and when you're in Israel. Because we do have to be mindful of a particular Israeli danger 
in Holocaust commemoration, which the FEA Tom moment really highlights. And that is the combination of the sensibility of victimhood with objective power. When you combine those two sensibilities, you get an Efietam, and you get the obtuseness of a Netanyahu nominating Efietam to be head of Yad Vashem. And so in that sense, I'm going to undercut the passion of my own argument <laughs> and, and agree with you that in the Israeli context, we have a very particular Jewish set of issues we need to deal with. But I have to tell you that one of the reasons I thought about this Rav Lady Yitzhak of the Ditch of Text is because I know that from an Israeli perspective, it actually really is important to ask when you have power, what's your potential for, for doing bad, for doing evil? As an American, I don't feel it in the same way, but I know it. And that's actually what brought me to that text in the first place. So Alana, the hard gift of Zionism is to reawaken our capacity for Amalek. It's given us power, it's given us the means to indulge our darkest impulses. I've mourned the Holocaust, but that mourning is not its universal lesson. I can't allow that mourning when I'm now in power to dominate the primary lesson of, of this memory. Agreed. I'll just reaffirm one point here, which is that when our power is under such sustained assault, the legitimacy of our power is under such assault around the world, this is a moment when we need to reaffirm the bottom line Jewish takeaway from the Holocaust, which is self-protection, the need for national sovereignty, and then, yes, universal lessons. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Svi Kalman and edited by Tali Cohen. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman and music is provided by SoCall. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are available. Thank you for listening. God be with us all. <laughs>